This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? dramatic or like sort of understated or what this is a land that prays for a hero the humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival you are listening to greening the apocalypse on triple r102.7 fm You are on Green the Apocalypse on 3 Triple R, your weekly collision of calamity and inanity. Mm. I was going to add something more positive there, but nothing really rhymes with inanity. Bananity. <laughs> Manatee. What does that even mean? Isn't that Manatee like a, is like a sea creature? Sea creature whale fish thing. <laughs> and that has zero relevance. <laughs> um, that was the voice of Kate Dundas. Hello. How are you this week? Very well, thank you. Yeah. And behind the knobs and dials this week, Jed's away, but we have uh, Kent Goldworthy with us. Hey, Kent. Top of the evening to you. Yeah. Sorry about that little delay there. There's um, a million buttons going off in front of me. Yeah, I know. It's a <laughs> it's an impressive array and <laughs> Voices a completely coming in intimidating my ears. one to me. Yeah. <laughs> so whatever you do in there, hat tip. Well, we're going to talk... It's a bit of a... I, I think it was a fascinating interview. We actually... Kate and I recorded uh, this a couple of days ago and we're going to cover topics around economics. But don't switch that dial just yet. <laughs> yes, we tackle it in a kind of hopefully idiot's guide manner. I find economics incredibly confusing. Yeah. Like I can normally understand things, you know, in life, going through life. Yeah. I can normally get to grips with concepts. I find economics and the concept behind economic modelling just, I just can't understand it. Yeah. I think a large part of it is the jargon and there's a little bit of jargon in there in places, but um, if you're feeling overwhelmed, hang in there because we, we do cut our fine, admirable guest off at a couple of p- points <laughs> and get, get us back on a jargon-free tangent. So uh, we, we spoke to Professor Steve Keane on Sunday. Uh, he... He's a former associate professor of economics at the University of Western Sydney. I believe, I, I know when you're not doing your, your main gig, Kent, here at Triple R, mm. you moonlight a bit, you know, <laughs> yeah. teaching, you know, in, in academia. a couple of campuses. Right, right. Yeah. And you, you knew Steve back then? Once yeah. upon a time at University of Western Sydney. Yep. Yeah. He's no longer there, of course. No, these they days... They shut down the eco- economics department. They did. Mm. And uh, he moved to London, where he is now professor and head of the School of Economics, History and Politics at Kingston University. And he's most famous for being one of the few people who warned of a global financial crisis before it happened. And for this and other work, he won the Revere Award from the Real World Economics Review for being the economist whose work is most likely to prevent a future financial crisis. His books include 2001's Debunking Economics and his recently published Can We Avoid Another Financial Crisis? And we spoke to him about why Australia looks vulnerable to a financial crisis and we get into things like what we can actually do about it as individuals and if we're policymakers. And it does get pretty damn interesting, I think. I left a little bit of the interview at the start, which was really the pre-interview, which uh, you kind of need for a bit of context. 
just ex- <laughs> explaining. Mm. I found out after the interview that, interestingly, he's pro-Brexit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We should have asked him about that. Right. Maybe next time. Next time. Mm. All right, let's hear from Professor Steve Keen. And we had you on last year, if you remember, and I listened back to it today, and we talked a little bit about how money is made and how yeah. money and debt aren't included in economists' models, neoclassical economists. Yep. And we also, at the time, talked a little bit about how they don't include nature and energy. I don't know if we'll go down those paths so much tonight. What we thought we would do is refer largely to the book, but try and avoid as much technicality as we can. Yeah, sure. And the artifice which we are employing to help you stay on that track is that we have just popped open two cans of Kate's husband's beer Dan is here in the studio in the background. He owns a brewery. <laughs> I see. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> we're talking serious beer, not not your um, not your garden variety stuff. No, we we've only got two cans, but they're about a liter each by the look of them. Mm. Oh bloody hell! Okay. Yeah. And Steve, I know absolutely nothing about economics, so I might just pipe in with some fairly naive questions, if that's okay. They put you ahead of most economists, by the way. Wow. Because <laughs> they like they bl- they'll bluff if they don't know something. They, they, they believe they know what they're talking about, and they're talking off with the bloody fairies. It's quite weird reading them on occasions. <laughs> <laughs> so, hopefully, um, you will get in the mindset of talking to some drunk people. We may get slightly drunker as the interview goes on. <laughs> that means we may interrupt you if we don't understand what you're talking about. I hope that's, that's okay. That's fine. <laughs> well, welcome back to Green in the Apocalypse, Steve Keane. Nice to be here. Now, you've had a pretty busy week giving presentations to the OECD and was it the UK Greens? Yeah, that's right. I did fly off because I'm actually staying in Amsterdam right now to fly over that and back again, which, of course, I wasn't allowed to sell some of the Greens, which is quite funny. <laughs> okay. Um, how did, you, how did your, um, your presentations go down, particularly to the OECD, I guess, since this was an organization who oh, – Kate's got a hand up. She doesn't I, know who the OECD is. I'd just like is. to ask, can you tell me who the OECD is or <laughs> what they are? Yeah, it stands for the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, and it was established in the aftermath of the Second World War by the, basically the countries of Europe and, and uh, the rich remaining rich countries on the planet, which pretty much was America. And uh, over time, it's grown to about 35 countries. The latest one to join, I think, was Mexico, or uh, Colombia is actually applying for membership. But it's sort of, they call it a rich man's club in that sense. Uh, so it's like the United Nations minus the poor countries. And it focuses predominantly on economic issues. Okay, thank you. And they were one organisation who did not see the global financial crisis coming and, in fact, in the days building up to it, as you so politely pointed out to them in the presentation, which I watched online, they uh-huh. were giving very positive economic outlooks. How did your presentation go down to them? Well, that's actually, uh, if, I'd, if I'd done it in the immediate aftermath of them getting it totally wrong, they would have probably tried to tear strips off me uh, or say, look, we can't predict these things anyway. But after a decade, what's really happened is a realisation that they, they did get it badly wrong and that uh, in, in continuing to think the same way after the crisis, it didn't mean things returned to normal. They continued uh, not you know, missing crises because there wasn't another crisis, at least in the US and the UK, but they missed completely the they thought there'd be a return to normality. So their basic model uh, of the economy, and this is not a joke, actually comes from a 1930s paper, is the economy is like a rocking horse. Hit it with a hammer 
which in, in a reg irregular way, and it'll turn it into irregular rocks. And if you stop hitting, it'll fall back and it'll stay, you know, uh, perfectly vertical. That's the model they've got of the economy. So they thought, oh, a big exogenous shock in 2008. We didn't see that one coming. Uh, back to normal. And oh, dear, a decade later, economy is still growing much more slightly than they expect, and all their forecasts are over-optimistic. So uh, by about 2012, there was enough momentum behind that realization that they formed what they call the new approaches to economic challenges unit inside the OECD. I had no idea that it existed until they invited me to speak. And um, the concept, because of this particular unit and also that just, you, you know, 100% accurate record of getting so totally wrong for the last decade, uh, they're more amenable than you'd ever expect to critical thought in economics. So, or did you have a question, Kate? Well, I was just going to ask, what were you presenting back to them then this time round? Oh, I was saying that the crisis was totally predictable because it was caused by a collapse in credit from uh, which they, they measure, all the OECD countries measure the amount of private debt that exists and they you can, you can work out how much it's changing. But they the economics that they were all trained in, the mainstream stuff, says all oh, credit is just one person lending to another. So the person who lends has less money the person who borrows has more, and then if they repay, it goes in the opposite direction. So it pretty much cancels itself out. That's that's their mental picture. That's totally wrong because when I swipe my credit card, it doesn't mean your bank account goes down. It makes the, means the bank's assets, which is my debt to them, go up, and my the money I've got in my account goes up, which I then hand over to to the um, whoever I'm buying, you know, whatever I'm buying off with a credit card, and that credit adds to demand when it's going up and subtracts from it when it's going down. So I've been saying that case for a decade, but it's the first time they actually invited me to say it in front of them. So can I have a shot at explaining this to Kate's slightly confused face? <laughs> yep. So we talked about this last time you are on the show, that when banks yep. create money, it essentially pops into existence out of thin air. It uh, does, yeah. So they're printing money on a machine? Well, no, it's, it's uh, bookkeeping. And it's just, yeah. or digits in a computer. And you use the metaphor in the book... Uh, that banks are not as we kind of imagine them as a warehouse for money where you put right. your money in and it's stacked, stacked up in a nice pile, be that in digits in a computer or in bits of paper, and then somebody can take out that money again. Uh, they're more like a money factory. And yeah, ev is every dollar, well, most dollars in circulation in the world, most money in circulation has an equal and opposite scary twin in debt. Which is the level of debt. Yeah. And that's because the moment when the money is created is when you take your money out on your credit card or when you get a loan from the bank. It's the debt that when you take it out, when you get it, when you get a loan, that's when they, that money just pops into existence on the bank's sheets. Now, John Kenneth, is it Kenneth Galbraith? He said the way money is created is so simple, the mind is repelled. And so Kate's looking at me I'm with some confusion. The repelling right But now. that's because you're too clever and you're overthinking it. <laughs> Thanks, it's Ed. so simple that it's hard to get your head around. Now, So if you're a bank, you can just make money out of thin air. Yeah, if someone's you, a bit debt. You've got to first of all persuade a lot of people to throw cash your way for a... You know, if you actually establish a bank the first time around, you've got to come with a certain amount of collateral. Let's say these days might be, say, a billion dollars. And that's your equity. And at the moment, you've got, you've got equity of a billion, but you have no assets and no liabilities because you haven't lent money to anybody else. Um, so what you can do is you can lend. Um, and when you lend, let's say you lend a, a total of a billion dollars in one year. When you lend, that increases your assets by a billion dollars. So that's the amount of new loans you've got on your books. 
But to do that, you've got to give people money. When you give them money, when you give them like having a deposit account, normally at the same bank, and that deposit account's also a, mil a billion dollars. So the assets go up by a billion, the liabilities go up by a billion, and you've still got a billion dollars in equity. Most banks operate um, when this in sort of responsible mode. They operate with almost a 10 to 1 ratio between their loans and their equity. Um, so, so that they can would mean like for every ten dollars in that that they that they have in their virtual vaults, they will loan out a hundred dollars. No, it's a bit different. That, that's sort of okay. a bit like the reserve idea. It's okay. It's 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 like it's not in their virtual vault. It's in their own bank account. Like yeah. they've got uh, you know they they put this money. It's like their what their share assets are worth. Uh, but it's okay. That's the cash they've got to gather first of all, and then that equity uh, they can lever that up and. Banks will, uh, when a bubble starts happening, and that's what happened, of course, in the Americas in the 1990s and, uh, and 2000s, that bubble meant that banks were willing to push that envelope and they would go from, uh, you know, some, somewhere up to an equity level of 30 to 1, which means their, their assets, their loans were about 30 times the equity the bank had left over. And their liabilities uh, are things fundamentally like bank accounts. They have other liabilities, but that's the main liability they've got. On the asset side, they have the loans they've made, but they'll also, you know, buy other assets. They'll collateralize their loans, sell them off books. They'll buy shares, and that means a lot of the assets they've got uh, aren't cash. They're assets with a value. There's shares valued at a certain price, or you know, other companies valued at a certain price. All right, well, the, dr the drunk in me yeah. is 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 calling this, Steve. I'm going to have to cut you off. I'm, I'm lost. Ah. I am lost. But, okay. Sorry, but, sorry, but, sorry, yeah. Let, let's talk about the implications of it. Assets are rubbery. If, if, Basically, assets are rubbery. Assets uh, include prices. That's a nice visual image. Assets are rubbery. Can we go jump robbery. on the bouncy castle of assets? Yes. Oh, rubbery, not robbery. Oh, rubbery. I think it's said rubbery. <laughs> because I had one too many beer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. But is it fair to say, though, that one of the implications of this is... Um, let, let's let's put all those complications to the side, and uh -huh. let's just can we just have the take-home point that the amount of debt in society mirrors the amount of money, and exactly. that one of the problems that you and uh, and the person to whom you dedicated your software package, Hyman Minsky, pointed out uh -huh. about the models of mainstream economists is that they think the level of debt, and by uh, virtue of that, the level of money in circulation isn't important and they don't include it in their models. Now, they use models to make predictions about what's going to happen in the future, mathematical models. And Minsky noted that their models were incapable, because of the assumptions and the nature of their models, they were incapable of simulating or predicting a financial crisis. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. What, and, what they do, they built models that left bank, money banks and debt out and they left, they left um, uh, the economy being out of balance out as well and then said, okay, we're going to fit this to the data as if the economy has been nicely in equilibrium all this time in the past and money banks and debt don't, debt don't matter. And then the, the real world is actually out of, out of balance and money and banks and debt are vital. So bang, they can be knocked totally sideways uh, by a crisis like 2008 because all the factors that caused it are deliberately left out of their models. Hmm. Now, you have been developing alternative models which do take money and debt into consideration and they seem to come from a very different foundation which you explained in some detail in the book Can We Avoid Another Financial Crisis? 
you were one of the people that predicted the global financial crisis coming. And yet I've seen you give presentations to hippies over the road from here at Ceres and you fund yourself these days on Kickstarter and Patreon. It kind of does my head in a little bit to think that you have better models <laughs> than the folks that are uh, part of the Fed or involved in hedge funds or advise governments. But would you say it's quite possible that you do? Oh, yeah. Well, the hedge funds are a different story. Some of the hedge funds have got their head screwed on and they're, they're following the same sort of data that I follow. So Ray okay. Dalio is one character like that. George Soros is another. Mm-hmm. And in, in a slightly different way, the same thing applies to Warren Buffett. So there's people in the finance sector who understand what's going on and are making money on that basis. But the majority, certainly in the central banks and the treasuries, uh, just have models that exclude all the factors that matter. Uh, and then they fit those to the data and whammo, um, uh, when, the, when the underlying real data changes, they haven't got a clue. Mm. So that's the basis of most of the academic economists. But, of course, academics can get away with that indefinitely. They're, they're, they're always building toy models for their students and they don't get held to account if things go wrong. It's the people in places like the OECD and the IMF and central banks who have to deal with politicians or say, look, the advice you gave us last time was not worth the paper it wasn't written on. Um, what the hell are you doing? And that sort of pressure means that over time they have to become more re- realistic. Hmm. So what kind of decisions are based upon these models? Is it a decision about what government spends its money on or a decision to set banking rates or what, what kind of flows on from these these models that exist that are wrong? Oh, but basically those, those two things are the major things. So they'll decide how much, you know, whether the, how large the deficit should be or they'll try, they'll try to reduce the deficit, which actually is quite stupid because that actually is what causes us to go more into debt when they pay their deficit down, ours goes up. So just like that, that really is a seesaw effect. Um, but they're also setting interest rates, all the expectations that Yellen has about the economy having recovered, uh, all that stuff is set because of those, uh, those fallacious models and sometimes they even rely upon fallacious data or data that's highly suspect like the unemployment rate in the USA which uh, it does, does not correlate at all with the employment rate in the USA because of the way they define unemployment is designed to punish people for being out of a job and uh, so you get you know all sorts of things happen the, the main step is they leave out the causal factors but they also sometimes look at indicators that are just totally wonky totally suspect mm-hmm. now you predicted the global financial crisis, and yet Australia was one country which sailed through fairly smoothly. What was it about Australia that allowed us to avoid the GFC? Two things in the main. One is that I, uh, you know, I can take some credit for scaring the bejesus out of Kevin Rudd, because if you go back and watch the interview I did on the 7.30 report where Kevin O'Brien interviewed me for half the show about my vision of the future, and Kevin Rudd was on the next day, and Rudd, and he really got savaged by Kerry O'Brien. And it's not the sole factor, obviously. But a week later, the Rudd stimulus package came out, and as well as including giving a thousand dollars to every everybody who paid their tax that year as a tax rebate, which is a huge injection of money into the economy uh, early on. They also doubled and trebled the first time what they call the first time owners scheme. You know, I've nicknamed the first time vendors scheme, and as well as giving us a, a quick fiscal stimulus from all that rapid government money spending that they did, which is something I was approve of, they also restarted the housing bubble. And then when the housing bubble gave way, of course, another country that got through the crisis by uh, restarting a housing bubble started buying iron and steel from us. That country is called China. So uh, we had a, first of all, had a recovery which began 
in of all places Victoria and the reason it began in Victoria was because the Victorian government on top of the $21,000 extra money that the federal feds gave Victoria gave an extra $14,000 to people buying slightly outside Melbourne so you had a, a $35,000 per person boost that, that uh, first home buyers got and of course they factored that up by a factor of 10 or 20 borrowing money by banks and boom up goes the bubble and then as that starts to subside on comes China which pushes Western Australia and Queensland into booms. Mm-hmm. So China, well, it was pretty much like the biggest economic boom in history and we more or less rode the coattails of it while also injecting a lot more debt into our system which has possibly made us more fragile to what comes next but let's come back to that one of the interesting things about your models that comes up in your book is what you or you talk about the calm before the storm or the great moderation what what do your models tell us about calm times yeah, this is this thing which I did not expect, by the way, because when I when I did those models, this is back in nineteen ninety one to ninety two. Uh, I was just trying to model Minsky's argument that rising debt could cause a financial crisis, and I, I got that effect out of the models. But what surprised me as well is in the prelude to the crisis, the volatility of employment and inflation actually declined. So if you're looking just at employment and inflation, and you didn't have the rest of the picture, you'd think, oh, things are getting much much better. And that's what, exactly what the mainstream did. They called it the Great Moderation, and Ben, ben Bernanke described it as this welcome change to our economy. At the end of my paper, which I wrote back in '92 and published in '95, I finished up by saying that the chaotic dynamics, and they were actually what's called chaos theory, chaotic dynamics in this paper should warn us against regarding a period of relative tranquility in a capitalist economy as anything other than a lull before the storm. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, I thought it was a nice piece of rhetoric, but it turned out to be what the real world did later. Now now we're in a situation uh, where I believe Australian households have record levels of debt. How does that compare to Australia historically and perhaps even to other countries currently? Well, there's only one country in the world that's had a, a higher level of private debt than Australia uh, in the past. That's Denmark. It peaked at about 140% of GDP as the household debt level. We've hit about 123%. One country's gone past us in the meantime, that's Switzerland. It's got 123% of uh, household debt-to-GDP ratio, literally we're the third most indebted country in history in terms of household debt. And um, that has risen, by, in Australia's case, by a factor of four from what it was like in the 1990s. And um, the other countries like America and Co., where they had a financial crisis back in 2007, their household sectors have reduced debt substantially. So America got to about, I think, like about 90% of GDP as a household debt level. And then it's now down to about, I think it's about 70% or about 70%. So they've gone down, we've gone up. Is that? And uh, that's why we appeared to recover and they didn't. Is that re- the reduction in debt down to um, the house prices decreasing or how did that happen? Yeah, well, it's... That's the mechanism. House prices rise if people are borrowing more money to buy them. That sounds pretty damn simple, and it mm-hmm. is. But the mainstream ignore it because they just, they don't see debt playing any active role. But if you think about if you if you, can, you can sell a house for a profit, the person who borrows who buys the house off you borrows more money than you did, uh, because as time's gone on, the gap between house prices and incomes has got bigger. So it's not somebody richer than you buying off you, it's somebody who borrows more money than you. Mm. And that means you, you continue getting rising house prices, you're relied upon rising leverage. 
And uh, we've actually done economic stats on this for America and got very, very strongly back that what drives rising house prices is the rising level of new mortgages. And uh, when that's when you start getting falling new mortgages, then bang, the house prices fall over as well. Mm-hmm. How, how does the Australian housing bubble, which I think is pretty widely accepted to be one at the moment, I don't think that's contested very much anymore, uh, but how does it compare to the US one that went bust in 2008? No, it's about, I can't give a straight numerical comparison right away, but it's something like about one and a half to two times as big in terms of how high it's driven house prices relative to incomes. It's one and a half to two times as big as it got in the US. So how how vulnerable is Australia to a fairly near-term financial crisis? We're quite vulnerable. The only thing that's keeping us, was keeping us afloat during that bubble as well as the borrowing of money by the household sector and the spending into the economy and causing a, a paper boom, you know, on the continent. You also had the sales to China and the investment uh, that was being done to finance building the mines for those sales to China. So all that stuff uh, gave us a, a fairly solid foundation in some ways, so long as minerals demand kept on coming in from China. Now, that started to decline, but uh, we had a, both a price boom and a, and a volume boom on the mineral sector. Now that's starting to slow down. It's very volatile. Sometimes China uh, starts importing on a fairly grand scale again, then, then it falls off again. So the from commodity prices, which were plunging for a while, are now bouncing around a fair bit. But we're relying upon two things now, keeping on uh, borrowing by the household sector, and that finally seems to be topping out, or largely foreign buyers of our properties. And, of course, a lot of that is, again, Chinese. But the Chinese themselves are trying to stop capital flight. So... If the Chinese government fails in stopping capital flight, you can you can rely upon Chinese buying, providing you know a substantial twenty or thirty percent of demand for housing in Australia. If they succeed in stopping capital flight, uh, then that's a double whammy for the house price market. Mm. China is one of the countries, along with Australia, Canada, and Korea, which you single out as being uh, you call them debt zombies to be. Uh, countries uh-huh. which are facing economic crises. So even if Australia on its own terms, if we just ignore China, if you're just looking at that debt-to-GDP ratio, appears to be facing a crisis, and then the main importing nation that we send our raw materials to is facing one, uh, how, how kind of severe is the crisis that we're facing? What does it it's, look like, I guess? I mean, it's been 25 yeah. years since there's been a recession in Australia, right? So a whole generation hasn't even experienced something on the level of a recession. And I, th- and if I get the impression you're talking about something potentially worse. Well, it, it's, the government spending always goes in the opposite direction and counteracts the downturn. So uh, that's something we didn't have back in the Great Depression days. Yep. And the scale of government spending, uh, in, of course, in 2008 was a major reason why Australia didn't have a crisis. Then, then the Lib- Liberal Party uh, pilloried right for that spending rather than Gillard for the spending. But if they hadn't done it, it would have gone down as deeply as America would have had unemployment rates of 10 and 12%. Uh, now, I think uh, we're likely to have maybe not as high an increase in unemployment in the first instance because even though we've driven up the level of private debt uh, to keep the housing bubble going, the proportion of demand that credit adds every year has de- declined a bit. So you, it's basically like you're jumping off a smaller cliff. You don't quite come down as hard, mm. uh, but you still come down. So I expect unemployment to hit sort of 8%, 10% levels. Uh, in that aftermath, and then the government's spending to kick in and to stop it getting any more extreme. Mm. But of course, in that situation, they're going to be 
pretty much stuck in the same situation that you know, what I call the walking dead of debt is in the rest of the world, uh, having inexplicably low growth and not being able to understand why, and having driven interest rates down to zero, and probably the Reserve Bank will dive in with quantitative easing as well. Hmm. So would a housing collapse be good or bad for young people? How might this play out? It'd be good for young people, except that it'll make them unemployed. <laughs> um, it's a double whammy because yeah. you, house prices are ridiculous. They've been driven far beyond what they should be for incomes. Uh, you saw some interesting comparisons uh, but from a guy who I think he was a, fire, a fireman, and he said that he, I think he took two and a half years income to buy his first house, and he now realized he sold it for 12 and a half times the income that a fireman gets these days. So you've got to the stage where we simply can't afford them on income, and therefore we want them to fall. But if they do fall, one of the reasons they'll fall is people stop borrowing money, and when they stop borrowing money, demand falls, and you know, young people will be out of a job. So it isn't just a case of saying, whoopee-doo, house prices are falling. You've got to also change economic policy to uh, reduce the impact of that reduction in private debt. Mm. Well, can we talk about – it would be really good to talk about some strategies that you recommend for governments in a minute. But I, I just wanted to you – know, I have some friends who are looking to buy a house at the moment. They're, they're actively searching and they want to live in the inner city near where their kid goes to school. And they've been kicked out of a couple of rental houses lately. It was actually the last one was because the speculator wanted, the person that owned it wanted to invest in the Sydney property market, which I think went up 20% last year, whereas Melbourne only went up a paltry 14. Uh-huh. Um, and I've been saying to them, maybe hold out a bit, but what, what could I, what, what do you think I should advise them? Oh, well, I mean, I'm very wary about giving financial investment advice. Yeah. But they're basically playing a gamble that the bubble in housing debt is going to continue and all, all that the impact of Chinese buying is going to continue driving up house prices uh, even if the Australian uh, shopping end falls over. And of course, there's every guarantee the government will dive back in to keep the prices going because they're probably more obsessed about getting house prices up than they are about getting unemployment down. So if you start seeing house prices falling, uh, they'll dive back in with first-time owner schemes as Rudd did uh, they'll loosen the laws on foreign buying so more foreign buying can come in and keep house prices high. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you're basically gambling, gambling in a loaded casino. Hmm. Um, what about, are you at all concerned, it seems like you're not, about a bank collapse? Do you think things could go that far? Oh, I think there will probably be one bank that has to be rescued. I mean, at least the, the, the mortgage book side of the Australian banking sector is so huge yeah. that uh, it's quite probable that one of them will go bust in the process and have to be, have to be bailed out, either, either visibly or behind the scenes. There's a lot of the stuff is done behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, you don't actually hear about it until after they're rescued. But if you go back to the 1980s, there's a book by Edna Carew called the Westpac, the bank that broke the bank. And in fact, Westpac at that time had to be bailed out. If it hadn't been bailed out, it would have folded with the 87 stock market crash. Mm. So the odds are there that certainly one bank is likely to go under. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't even nominate which one, but the mm. odds are good that one will go down. So what, where would be a safe place to put your money, to put any investment that you might have? I remember when I was in the permaculture course with Adam a few years ago, we talked about investing in raw materials like stainless steel and breweries because people always want to drink when they're feeling a little bit sad. So we ended up going down that road. But <laughs> oh. are, 
what where where would you invest? What would be a safe house? Well, the, the stuff which is safe in a crisis like this is government bonds because when this sort of thing hits, the Reserve Bank will be forced to go into reverse with interest rates. It's currently expecting to put them up. It'll be forced to go into reverse uh, and you'll find there'll be a profit margin because when, when interest rates go down, bond prices effectively will automatically go up. So that's in terms of buying a financial asset. That's the best way to go. Otherwise, yeah, yeah, I mean, you go for necessities or um, stuff that makes sense and uh, you know, cheer yourself up in a downturn. So beer isn't a bad idea. <laughs> All right. You guys are onto a good thing. <laughs> well, let's talk um, oh, government strategies. Now, the, the personal ones we mentioned there, uh, I'm not it, – often there's a, there's a balance there between ones that are good for yourself and good for your country. <laughs> yeah. I think um, possibly buying government bonds is something that could do both, would it? Um, if the government bonds are actually being used to finance investment, uh, because government bonds these days, uh, you know, they, they, they partly do finance infrastructure investment, but, uh, you know, in, in some ways government bonds finance the NBN and they made a total fist of that because <laughs> Malcolm Turnbull was directed by Tony Abbott to stuff up labour rather than to worry about producing a decent uh, telecommunication system for the country. Right, and there's so, a whole military and complex and things. So, yeah, com- complex issue. Yeah. Let's, uh, but let's talk about if you were the government and or if Steve Keane was um, national treasurer, what, yeah. or if you get, you know, and possibly in a crisis, there is a chance that uh, rebel economists like yourself actually get a little bit closer to the halls of power. Um, what practices and policies would you put into place? Well, this is where I'm really outside the mainstream. What I'd be arguing for, and I do argue for on my blog on the manifesto page, is what I call a modern debt jubilee. Because what's actually caused this is we've let the financial, the private sector, financial sector, um, create far too much money by creating debt. And the government's created far too little because it's been obsessed about trying to balance its books. When government actually creates money by spending more than it gets back in taxation, and that's quite feasible for it to do it, and it stops the private sector having to borrow from the banks. So I have argued in favour of the government using its money creation capacity, like I did back with a $1,000 stimulus back in uh, 2008, but say let's make that $10,000 per person rather than 1000 and then wow. people yeah, who have really. debt get a $10,000 reduction, but those without debt get a $10,000 cash injection mm-hmm. and I then use that cash injection partly to let them spend because you want a bit of economic stimulus but partly also to buy shares off companies that would also be used to reduce corporate debt because what we've allowed to happen in the last 40 years is the development of the biggest private debt bubble in the history of capitalism mm-hmm. and we've got to get it down and we can get it down that that's fairly painless way uh, the trouble is I think of course that won't happen we'll do it in a much more painful way. The last painful way we got the private debt level down was declaring war on each other, the Second World War. Yeah. Um, so in that scenario, do you does that mean that the government goes into debt? It's kind of taking the debt burden from the private sector, essentially. But you think private debt is more destabilizing than public debt? Oh, yeah, private debt. See, private debt, you've got to borrow money from a bank that you don't own. Imagine if you could borrow money from a bank you do own and it was legal and people that still accept what you borrowed. Would you ever worry about going into debt? <laughs> no, that sounds pr- like, yeah, I'd probably spend a lot more time on beaches, I guess. <laughs> that's, exact, that's exactly what the government's got. It's the only institution in the, in the society that owns its own bank. 
And on top of that, not only does it own its own bank, we automatically accept its bank's money. If the government puts a thousand bucks in your bank account and doesn't explain where it got the money from, you're going to spend the money no, no matter what. Um, it's still it's still cash in your hands without being a debt for you. Mm. And then secondly, every other, every other bank has to have positive equity. The reason banks go bankrupt is their asset values fall, their liabilities remain constant, they end up with negative equity. And because of that alone, they're forced to declare bankruptcy. But this, the, the bank, the Reserve Bank, can have negative equity. And this has actually been stated in a recent paper by the Bank of England, that's probably the most progressive uh, central bank in the world. So they've got much more flexibility. Mm. And in some ways, you can regard the so-called debt they've created as more like an equity share in the country, which they finance by issuing dividends, which again, the Reserve Bank can fundamentally create. So they just don't have the limitations we do. The main limitation is if they do too much of it, they can cause a bubble or they can cause a huge boost in imports and cause the trade balance to get even worse. That's the main limitation they face. But practically, practically speaking, they don't have to worry about debt. Yeah. So what's stopping governments doing that just now? Uh, moronic views about how banks are created. They're taught in first year economics and people like Tony Abbott and, uh, and Malcolm Turnbull all swallow them, as do quite a few on the Labor Party. And the, most journalists and most of the public was says, where's the money coming from? And uh, like Theresa May said to some nurse who was having to get food from food banks, well, there is no magic money tree. She's right. There are two <laughs> magic money trees. One, one, the banks own, and they create more money by lending out more than they get back in repayments. And never, nobody ever asked the bank where, they, where you got the money from to lend to us. They assume it borrowed the money. In fact, the bank create the money by double entry bookkeeping. Well, exactly the same thing applies to the government, only in the government's case, they don't have even the limitation that the banks have, because again, as I've said, a standard bank can't afford to go negative equity. There's the Reserve Bank, nobody actually knows what its equity position is, and they don't need to know. It, it seems really extraordinary that at the heart of economics is money, and the process by which money is created is something that I get the impression you're saying most economists don't understand or think is irrelevant and that goes that that finds its way right through into the heart of politics where you get policies of austerity to deal with economic crises where you're saying the exact opposite is needed i might have have i conflated too much there kate no No, that makes a lot of sense to me yeah it's spot on and this this is the painful thing because um, you, you see, first of all, this naivety about um, money creation that if it, that is an essential part of mainstream economics, being naive about how money is created. But then at the same time, we've all got naive views about uh, how we should you know, manage budgets as well, which we extrapolate to the government. And it's exactly the same situation as back in, say, in the 1500s, uh, when people are, believe that the Earth is the centre of the universe for the obvious reason that the Earth and the Moon rotate around us. The public believes a, a toll-make, earth-centered view of economics in that sense. And that's because the mainstream economists continue pumping out stuff that supports that delusion. Hmm. Well, it sounds like your work, you know, with your recent in- speaking engagements and others, that you're getting some of the recognition that it seems you deserve. And thank you so much for taking the time to come and speak to us on Greening the Apocalypse, Professor Steve Keane. Welcome, guys. I'll go have my breakfast now. Enjoy. <laughs> You're on Green the Apocalypse on 3RRR. That was Professor Steve Keane. 
What did you th- What did you think, guys? I'm in the studio with Kate Dunders and Kent Goldworthy. I and, reckon uh, it was a pretty heady. I, I, I felt like I was riding a wave of understanding. Yeah. So I'd I'd be like, yes, I totally get this, and then all of a sudden I'd be like, oh my goodness, economics is you just got dumped. Really, really baffling. I just got dumped by that wave of <laughs> wave of understanding into the surf depths of confusion. You listen to conversations like that, and you. you one of the first challenges where to place yourself in it you know am i this humble wage earner just trying to make my way through life or am i trying to understand a global political economy or am i trying to just relate it to how i manage my own finances Mm -hmm. and and you can get lost in thinking through that positioning Yeah. yeah I think the, the we've been chatting a bit off air about the difference between cash and other things that aren't cash. Like that other are, forms of money. Like the economy. So, yeah, there's the economy. When I think about economics, I think, oh, money, printed money, right. cash. Yeah, cash but that's just bank. a tiny fraction of it. I think we're, when we're talking about how um, money is it has an equal and opposite twin in debt and that money that type of money is created by banks... Cash is different. I think cash is is made by the mint by the government, but it's only such a tiny fraction of the money in circulation that if everybody in the country paid back our paid back their debts, all you'd have left is cash, and you, nobody buys a house with cash. Nobody buys a car. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe a few gangsters buy cars with cash, <laughs> but there's actually just not enough of it. It's, it'd be like 1% of the money was left and that's not enough to keep the economy going. So it's really just about exchanges and hoping that the notation of all of those exchanges is accurate and the computers don't come in and start messing with everything. You mean like how does the money system work? It's it's like digits in a bank. It's digits. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it used to be a ledger sheet, I guess, that people filled in by hand. And, so but you have to have days- this epic amount of trust in the couple of people who manipulate the digits. Yeah, I guess. Um, I'm not sure. Well, there's there's the complication because then you start to have questions about what's the role of the state or government in this and, you Mm. know, questions about regulation and so on. And somebody like Steve Keane being, you know, I guess in the the lingo um, post-Keynesian, you know, saying... You know, there's still a role for government, but capitalism is very different than the social democratic version of Keynes thinking about management of demand and supply and so on. Yeah, Mm. Yeah, so Keynes was the... I mean, he, he was the f- the economist who influenced Roosevelt and yep. got kind of the um, the government to spend money during the Depression. Exactly. Well, we're a famous quip that people can kind of use to orientate the understanding of what it meant when he was talking about getting economic activity at all costs going. Yeah. He, um, Roosevelt, on, on the back of Keynes' advice, saying, I don't care if we need to employ people to dig holes in the ground just so that they can fill them up again. You know, yeah, yeah. Just get that economic activity going, keep people employed. Yeah. Ah, which at one level is ridiculous, but that's the nature of our monetary system, mm. that it requires somebody to go into debt to make the money. And so he was just saying, well, let's, let's make the government go into the debt with just meaningless jobs if that's what it takes. So is there a post-debt world? Is there a post-debt economy where people don't work so much and you know there's all these articles that I'm reading at the moment about the benefit of working less and having more leisure time and actually having machines take over all the boring work might be a good thing yeah but one but yeah the um the problem with that is that our money supply the nature of it it requires growth and uh, if if we all disengage from it and spend less and work less it would it would possibly it would probably crash the system 
The the growth and that's been coined the the growth fetish. You know, this idea that we've yeah. got to pursue growth, um, that economies get bigger, that companies get more profitable, et cetera, et cetera, at all costs, you know. And if yeah. there was some kind of, um, you know, momentarily lapse in uh, any of that growth, then and it's the, mon- the house it's of cards had come down. The yeah. way we make money and that, that way that banks make money is one of the driving forces why politicians who, you know, at some levels are intelligent people, and, you know, all sorts of commentators have to talk about, like, growth on a finite planet is not only possible but a good thing. Um, when we know it's impossible and it has to be constrained at some point. And, and, these, and so this, these ridiculous things about we have to grow all the time come out of these otherwise smart people's mouths. Okay, they have some other faults. <laughs> and I think a large part of that is that they intuitively understand that the monetary system requires it. And so, yeah, back to your question, can we have like this post-debt world? Well, uh, at the end, Steve was talking about having... Oh, it's actually in the book, not in the interview, but he talked about uh, having alternative currencies pick up some of the slack of the national currency. And you can design currencies which aren't based on debt and don't require growth to have any semblance of stability. So like a local currency. Yeah, but there's also already complementary currencies, you know, like barter card is essentially a currency, even... Yeah. Like Bitcoin. Bitcoin is obviously one, yeah. So that, that doesn't require growth to remain stable. It's not very. Oh. It's not very stable, <laughs> it, it, but but, yeah. it, but but it's but not. But it's grown so much. Yeah, and it's also been unstable. But it's not inherently in its design that it uh, requires growth for it. Whereas we didn't really go into the mechanisms why. But trust me, if you have a if you have a money system based on on debt, and then you have a economic slowdown, and everybody starts paying their debts back without taking out new ones, the amount of money in circulation starts to shrink and that makes this, the economic outlook look even worse because everyone's trying to get their, get their pay off people that own the money and they're even struggling to pay their debtors. Even though it's a good thing that we're paying the debt back. Is that not a good thing? My yeah, head, yeah, my head. I know. There's a, I know. There's a relevance to thinking about what is the nature of the debt and whose debt it is. So there's a distinction between debt that is used for investment and, there's a, and there's a debt that's the consumer debt that's overwhelming Bad us, debt. you know, where most of us <laughs> are in negative. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, he definitely is saying like the household debt is one of the most destabilising ones. Yeah, well, we've reached we, the end. We have. We should mention. We just raised more questions than we answered. Yeah. Here. Well, if you do want to check out Steve's book, it's you know it's a little bit wonky, but it's got really great uh, ratings on Goodreads and things. So people are definitely enjoying it. It's called "Can We Avoid Another Financial Crisis," and Steve Keen's website is debt deflation debtdeflation dot com. This has been a podcast from Three Triple R One Hundred Two Point Seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr dot org dot au